Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelen Tsinti, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, AU faces criticism for deferring a report on human rights abuses in South Sudan. Zimbabwe civil society demand the release of kidnap activists. And experts gather in Japan for the UN Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction. In economics, GlaxoSmithKline launches a share sale in South Africa. And in sports news, Ghana and Mali qualify for the FIFA Under-20 World Cup. But first up, the news with Onelin Sinsi. Islamic State militants have accepted a pledge of alliance by Boko Haram extremist group. A spokesperson for the Islamic State movement says that development comes as both movements, which are among the most ruthless in the world, are under increasing military pressure. Islamic State seized much of the northern and western Iraq last summer, giving it control of about a third of both Iraq and Syria. Pokoram pledge of alliance comes as the militant was massing in the northeastern Nigerian town of Gwaza, considered their headquarters for a showdown with the Chadian-led multinational force. Meanwhile, the Islamic State group affiliated in Libya has claimed responsibility for an explosion at a police station in the country's capital, Tripoli. The blast early yesterday caused panic among residents, but no one was hurt. Police say the explosion was set off by militants who had placed explosives under police vehicles in the central neighboring Zawiyat al-Damani. The front of the police station and some nearby buildings were damaged. It is the first attack on a Tripoli police station claimed by ISIS. The group has targeted embassies and hotels. Libya's Tamil has provided fertile ground for ISIS elite militants to control the eastern city of Adana. African Union Commissioner has refused to be drawn on whether heads of states were justified in deferring a Commission of Inquiry report into human rights violation in South Sudan. The regional body's special envoy on women's peace and security, who was also an investigator in the inquiry, argued that her mandate ended when the report was handed over to heads of states to be tabled. Heads of states decided in January to defer the tabling of the reports in order to allow the peace negotiations to be finalized. Show and price pieces more. The renewed fighting pits South Sudanese government troops and rebels, led by the country's former Vice President Riek Machar. The fighting follows the collapse of the final talks in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, that were to be used by President Salva Kiir. Over 200 people have been arrested in Tanzania as part of a nationwide crackdown on witch doctors linked to a wave of albino attacks and murders. Police arrested 225 unlicensed traditional healers and soothsayers 
during a special operation carried out in several parts of the eastern East African country. The operation will be extended to all 30 regions. Meanwhile, police in Malawi have arrested a man for trying to strangle to death a 16-year-old albino boy. Police in the southern tea-growing district of Molange say the man will soon appear in court on charges of attempted murder. According to the Association of Persons with Albinism in Malawi, the bodies of dead albinos are sometimes exhumed and sold. Finally, floods caused by torrential rains have killed 62 people, 35 of them children, in the Angolan city of Lobito. The Angop State News Agency says the flood waters have reached three meters in some areas of the city since Wednesday. Scores of homes have been destroyed and rescue teams are still searching for missing people. President Jose Eduardo dos Santos has ordered local authorities to provide assistance to the victims. Large parts of Angola have been hit by heavy rains since January. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. It is exactly 8.05 Central African time on this Friday, the 13th, the 72nd day of 2015, with 293 days left in the year. In our top story, an African Union commissioner has refused to be drawn on whether heads of state were justified in deferring a commission of inquiry report into human rights violations in South Sudan. The regional body's special envoy on women, peace and security, who was also an investigator in the inquiry, argued that her mandate ended when the report was handed over to heads of state to be tabled. Heads of state decided in January to defer the tabling of the report in order to allow the peace negotiations to be finalized. Show and Bryce Peace for us in New York. As South Sudan peace talks miss one deadline after the next, the AU Commission believes it has played its part and that the matter is now with heads of state. Benita Diop is the AU Special Envoy for Women, Peace and Security. I'm not going to talk about the outcome because this is not my role to do it. Um, what was my role and the role of the Commission was to go, that is, was our mandate, to investigate, to come with a report and to give the report to those who have committed us to do it. Our work has been done. Reuters reported earlier this month that a leaked draft of the report called for the exclusion of both President Salva Kiir and opposition leader Riek Machar from any future transitional government in direct contradiction to ongoing peace negotiations. Diop again in an interaction with this correspondent. You need to go to the head of state and ask them why um, you are not discussing this, uh, this report, but the Commission have done a wonderful job, that I can tell you, and I can go on on that, um, meeting with the women and talking and discussing for six months. That has been my role, and I came with a beautiful report. So now ask the, those who have asked uh, to go, and uh, we need to salute that effort that the AU have done, but the, also the effort of the Commission of Inquiry. But now the issue s- is... Salute a report that's gathering dust and not being implemented. I mean, what's the point of saluting that? Now you will ask the accountability to the leadership to say why this report is not discussed. But on my role, I'm very proud to have done. And when you will read that report, when you have the opportunity, you will see that I've done my work. 
This as officials and delegates attending the Commission on the Status of Women call for greater accountability and implementation to ensure women's empowerment and gender equality. Rwanda's Minister of Gender and Family Protection, Oda Gasingzigwa, lauded her country's strides on gender equality, here speaking on peace and security in Africa. What we are advocating for is to see how do we sustain this. We cannot sustain this if we still have uh, issues of peace and security, which really impacts our women, not only in Rwanda, but also in the region. But what we are saying today here, 20 years after, really, let us be serious. Let us be serious and implement at the national level, but again at the regional level and at the international level. We want to see these negative forces out of the, the, the peace talks now in the implementation. Threats of sanctions on the protagonists in South Sudan have failed to secure a final peace deal with the IGAD deadline of March 5th having already lapsed. I'm Sherwin Ricebees in New York. A coalition of Zimbabwean civil society groups has vowed to disrupt the SADC Heads of State Summit scheduled for end of April if abducted journalist Itai Zamara is not released. The coalition issued the threats yesterday, five days after the abduction of Zamara in the capital Harare. Zamara was the leading face behind Zimbabwe's ongoing Occupy Africa Unity Square movement, which called for President Robert Mugabe's resignation. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The abduction of Zimbabwean journalist and human rights defender Itai Zamara Sunday has placed the country on the limelight again. Zimbabweans are reminded of the politically motivated killings and abductions in 2008 leading to the inclusive government. The country was in an election mood then, but the abduction on Sunday has left the world shocked. Since Sunday, various organizations and Western diplomats have condemned the illegal taking away of Zamaram. However, Thursday, local civil societies threatened to disrupt SADC and AU meetings unless Itai is released. Speaking on behalf of all civic societies in Harare Thursday, Dr. Pejisai Rwanya made the threat. Civil society organizations in Zimbabwe demand the immediate release of journalists and pro-democracy activists Itai Zamara, failure of which we will lobby SADC and AU member states to remove President Robert Mugabe from chairing these two regional blocks. Itai Zamara, a journalist by profession, started a group called Occupy the Unity Square Gardens last year as a protest against Robert Mugabe. The group argued that the country's leader is too old to rule and should resign. Mugabe, now 91 years old, has ruled the country from the year of independence from colonial rule in 1980. Zimbabwean civic society says the abduction is illegal. Civil society unanimously calls upon Itai Zamara subductors to immediately release him. His protest action, for which he is clearly being harassed by the state, are protected by Section 59 of the Constitution <coughs> of Zimbabwe. When calls for the country to release Zamara started flowing from all corners of the world, acting President Emerson Mnangagwa 
gave assurances in parliament that the journalists would be found. The police also made such assurances, but the civic society is skeptical due to nasty experiences in the past. Beyond the assurances from police and Vice President Emerson Munangagba, which we are skeptical of basing on past incidents where they turned out to, to be insincere, government must facilitate a speedy and judicious process that brings it back. Following a disputed election result in 2008, the country was plunged into bloodshed with abductions being the order of the day. More than 400 opposition activists were abducted and killed by suspected members of the intelligence, army, police, as well as ZANU-PF youths. Another journalist, Justina Mkoko, was abducted and three months later arraigned before the courts after a global outcry. Mukoko talks of her fears. I think our fears of what might happen to Itai are really of concerning us at this um, point in time. And uh, we really appeal that uh, those who are holding him uh, release him immediately because I think we have even passed the 48 hours when somebody is supposed to be brought to court and to date we have not seen him uh, appear in court. Uh, his family do not know where he is and uh, I think this uh, system of abducting people is really archaic and I think our country needs to move in terms of um, avoiding the enforced disappearance of its citizens. Efforts to locate Itai Zamara so far have proved fruitless and Zimbabweans now fear for the West. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. On the 17th and 18th of this month, join Channel Africa as we bring you live a broadcast on the second annual public-private dialogue forum on infrastructure projects held at the Hayat Hotel, Rosebank, South Africa. The summit will discuss the mechanisms, the successes and failures of local and international economic development initiatives in order to make recommendations of how to adapt them to benefit the broader African community. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. A large African delegation will be participating at this year's World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction, WCDRR, hosted in the city of Sendai in Japan. The third WCDRR under the theme Building Resilience of Nations and Communities Against Disasters comes at a time when a number of African nations are just recovering from the effects of the floods that started in December last year. The conference seeks to adopt a new framework for tackling these issues and other disasters affecting the globe. For more on this, Selina Dobong spoke to Rhoda Peace, African Union Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Economy. We arrived in Sendai yesterday and... Uh, the global meeting on disaster risk reduction in Sendai is opening tomorrow. So as a, a team from Africa, 
early this morning we came together to reflect on the issues, to agree as a continent that this is what we would like to put forward in the global meeting. It was a reflection of issues. It was kind of stock-taking, and uh, we have had... What issues are you looking to put on the agenda as the African representatives that you deem pressing, that need to be looked at, and that need to be discussed throughout the conference this week? In Africa, with our limitations, we have had to look at uh, what constitutes disaster risk reduction. We have had to agree on the elements on the issues and on the challenges. We have had to put these issues high on the agenda because uh, for the last three years, Africa has not had uh, really an, a clear understanding better than now. But now we see that uh, we must reflect on disaster risk reduction, especially with regard to enhancing the capacity. When you look at the issues which are taking place, especially now, say in Mozambique and in Malawi, these are issues related to changes in climate change. But we are not here for meeti- as a meeting on climate change. We are here to see how we can be able to mitigate these issues. So these are the issues we want to put at the global level. This is the third conference. What would you say have been some of the successes of these meetings? Africa, as you know, has many, many challenges. So we find ourselves looking at... Uh, the issues of poverty, we take a lot of time looking at uh, what is happening as far as uh, food insecurity is concerned. We take a lot of time looking at uh, how do we make development uh, programs which are more sustainable. But then we find that we are not able even to reflect better on the issues of, uh, for example, strengthening the capacities of infrastructure to ensure that we are not able to be overwhelmed by disasters when they do occur. So over the three-year period, Africa has now been able to understand that, uh, yes, I believe Africa now is better placed to look at issues to mitigate, the issues to finance, although the challenges of limitations in resources are there. So Africa now is, is really over a three-year period. is able to speak also together to say internationally, this is where Africa is and this is where Africa is able to stand. We have put together a program of action. The countries have put together different committees at different levels, at the village level. Practically now these committees are able to to make the villages prepare. In fact, the community-based approaches are much better. So we have seen a lot of uh, real developments going on, not expecting things from out there. If they are there, they are complementary. They are no longer now the issues of uh, out there, the issues of what can we do for ourselves. So the issues of disaster risk reduction are better understood now, better than before. The last three year period has has seen all these processes now strengthening the understanding, strengthening the capacities. But also we are able to put these issues together internationally because globally, what is agreed on globally, you find that it is better really attended to both the regional level and also at the country level and down there, of course, complemented by the support of different groups. That was Rhoda Peace, African Union Commissioner for Agriculture and Rural Economy, speaking to Selina Dobong in Sendai, Japan. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Green Cross International, an independent non-profit organization, has released a report saying that 32 million people in Japan are exposed to radiation from the Fukushima nuclear power station. Professor Jonathan Summit, director of the Institute for Global Health at the University of Southern California, says a systematic approach was taken to gather information regarding the number of people affected by the Fukushima nuclear disaster. He was speaking to Channel Africa's Wandile Kalipa. was to describe the scope of the people affected. The numbers of people who might have been exposed to radiation, some understanding of the number of people who were displaced by the disaster and never to return to their homes, and the number of people who might experience stress because of the event. This report, is it looking at people who are exposed to radiation only? No, we were trying to be broader than that. So we were trying to understand the sort of broader consequences for people, for their well-being, for their mental health. So we were trying to take a much broader look than just the radiation issue. And this radioactive contamination at Fukushima, what has it found to be its effects on humans and the environment in the area? Sure. So one consequence is that some of the places that people live became so radioactive that they could not, they had to leave their homes and they can't go back. So there's about 150,000 people roughly who maybe never get home or at least were displaced. And for some, they won't be able to clean up the radioactivity because there's too much of it. So that is one problem with radioactivity. We know that extra radioactivity causes cancer. There will probably be some extra cancer, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the biggest problem. Probably the biggest problem is the stress that people will have to live with and then, of course, the economic consequences of this disaster. So this radioactive contamination in and around the area of Fukushima, is it a long-term yes, issue? For, or in some is places, it the... it's long-term, yes. So they are trying to clean it up, but you know, in some places there's just too much of it. So they are doing things like scraping off the top dirt and moving it away to place it somewhere where it will be not contaminate people. But in some areas, there's so much radioactivity that they can't do that. Looking at Chernobyl and Fukushima disasters, why is it the need for transparency and better governance around nuclear power from your organization's perspective? Well, I think um, from the point of view of Green Cross, and I mean, I think you would need to talk to the director, to Natalie Kesey. I mean, I think what we're helping them do is show that these disasters have consequences. Of course, there's a debate in many places about nuclear power and its future, and I think the point Green Cross wants to make is that there are risks with this technology, and and in these two examples, millions of people have been affected by Chernobyl and Fukushima. Doctor, you're talking about the extra cancer. Would you elaborate Uh on that? Well, there have been a number of analyses of that, and when you look at it across either Japan or the world, these estimates have been made. I mean, of course, cancer is not uncommon, so there are estimates of some hundreds to perhaps a thousand or more extra cases of cancer because of the radioactivity. We're lucky because most of it went into the ocean, so about 80% radioactivity from Fukushima went over the ocean and not over Japan. So that's good. In Chernobyl, there was a problem of thyroid cancer in young children, but I think we're not likely to see that in Fukushima because they were very careful 
to make certain that milk, foods from the area were not distributed, and to make certain that children had iodine to block, to block uptake of radioactivity into their thyroid glands. So that was a problem in, for children around Chernobyl that I hope we're not going to see in Fukushima. Now, the danger for the marine ecosystem, how serious would that be for this radiation entering right, the sea? Right. So that's sort of an ongoing story. So, you know, there's continued problems there of getting the radioactivity, the water that's leaking under the plant, under control. To now, there has been, of course, radioactivity found. The levels of radioactivity are being monitored in the fish, and they're watching that very closely. So there is a concern about, you know, contamination of the ecosystem right around the plant with radioactivity. Now, looking at the species in the oceans, looking at, the, for instance, uh, fish like uh, tuna as well as other fish with regards to this level of radioactivity, is there any danger for us to consume that type well, of fish? that's what's being monitored. I mean, I, I think for people in general, no. I mean, I think the issue is for those who live nearby and use those fish to make certain that the foods are monitored and if levels of radioactivity are too high that the fish are not eaten. So I, I don't think it's a concern globally. You know, I mean, fortunately, of course, the oceans have enough capacity to dilute the radioactivity, but for the local situation, there's concern. What could be said about the psychological stress? Right. That's an important issue, of course, for many people. And the severity of it probably you know, ranges, of course. I mean, some people had to leave their homes. Some people have been displaced. They're living in small, you know, portable housing. They're worried about their children. They're worried about their future. So, I mean, the stress possibly affects millions of people to uh, different degrees. So would that go over time? Or would it remain with them for the rest of their lives? Well, you know, I mean, for some it may remain forever, you know, because they never get to go back to their homes and their, you know, their communities have been disrupted. I mean, you know, of course, this area was hit not only by the radioactivity, but unfortunately, of course, by the tsunamis as well. There really was a huge amount of stress placed on these people. That was Professor Jonathan Summit, Director of the Institute for Global Health at the University of Southern California in the United States, and he was on the line speaking to Wandile Kalipa. It is 8.26 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Millions of people in rural areas of Madagascar continue to be affected by food insecurity. In one of the many measures aimed at addressing the situation, the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, is leading an assessment to identify the damages caused by lack of rains in the south and its impact on agriculture and food security. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by FAO's Dr. Patrice Tala Takukam. Good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Now, Doctor, just how dire is the food insecurity situation in Madagascar? Um, first of all, I would like to thank you for this opportunity that you gave me this morning to talk about the um, food insecurity in Madagascar. Uh, as you know, uh, first of all, I will start by saying that uh, the level of malnutrition of Madagascar is for more than 50% for the whole population, and is can uh, is very high uh, in the rural in the rural areas, specifically in the south. And during uh, the last two months, the country 
has uh, going through very difficult situation, mainly uh, by the flooding, by the rains in the north, and the drought in the south. And today we'll be talking specifically uh, about the situation in the south, where the population have been facing the drought and uh, and the real food security insecurity situation due to the to the drought, uh, because the population were not able to have uh, the food and uh, the food product as usual. And so uh, since a few weeks, uh, the cluster, which is composed of different humanitarian institutions in Madagascar, including the UN institution, but also the humanitarian NGOs, uh, have been conducting a survey and assessment of the situation. And uh, what we can say now is that uh, the food insecurity is very serious and uh, uh, we are planning to have the results of, uh, of this assessment by the end of this week. And once we have uh, these results, we will be planning to have uh, an emergency project to see how we can uh, uh, provide uh, specific solutions to the population and hoping that... Uh, the rain might come back uh, during the month of March. Now, Dr. Takukam, what coping strategies have some of them have some of the people been have they resorted to? Um, just as you are uh, busy with your assessment, what are people doing to mitigate the circumstances or the situation that they're in? Uh, uh, currently, what I say, the different humanitarian organisations have some stocks of of food available, but on, not only uh, humanity, but also the government. Uh, but the reality is that uh, uh, since uh, this situation started, uh, most of the stocks that different uh, institutions and NGOs has was really uh, were distributed, and there were no more uh, uh, availability of those uh, of those uh, those food stocks. So what we are uh, doing now is really to see how we can we could provide some. Um, assistance to this population uh, by uh, bringing uh, new stocks, but also uh, by looking at more sustainable solutions. And one of the more sustainable solutions to see how to assist the population with the seeds. Uh, because given uh, the situation, many of the rural population were obliged to eat the seed that they were going to use for, for, for cultivation. So one, an important issue will be to see how we can provide new seeds uh, when the rent comes, but so that they could... Uh, plant those seeds for but at the same time we need uh, to look at the seed that, that could uh, grow very quickly uh, because uh, the new uh, season is coming and there is a risk of uh, lack of food uh, for the coming months yeah. now as the FAO are you happy with the efforts that have been put in place so far to, to avert further destruction uh, what I would say is that, in fact, FAO and with uh, other organizations in the cluster has always uh, been very uh, working close with these communities to find a solution to this to this problem. Uh, but we should recognize that, in fact, what's happened this year is very exceptional uh, with the flood in the north and the drought in the south. But I also like to mention that one of the one of the issues, as you may know is the locust problem in the in Madagascar which is also in the south and FAO has been con- has been conducting uh, uh, operations since last year to um, to be able to to resolve this issue of locust who can, who could have a, a serious impact uh, impact on the on the production so we are currently implementing a three year program uh, that will help 
to reach to a remission level in, in, in order to, uh, to avoid uh, impact of the locust on, on, on food production and food security for, for rural population. Now, Doctor, how would you sum up the role of the FAO um, that the, the FAO has played in assisting vulnerable communities on the island? Is it enough? Uh, in fact, uh, for many years, uh, FAO and other organizations like WSP they have really provided uh, assistance to to this population. But at the same time, you should know that Madagascar is a country uh, who is who also faces every year the cyclone, mainly during the cyclone season, and this is always the uh, situation that comes every year. And every time we uh, we always try to to bring solutions that can. Help the pollution to, 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 in fact, to have to, to resolve or to face uh, the impacts of the of the cyclones. But at the same time, it's always difficult to, to, in fact, to be able to to know what could be the impact of the cyclones on the, on the population. Mm. So every time that we face this situation, we have, first of all we have to evaluate and to assess the situation, to evaluate the impact, and then to see what solutions could be brought to, 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 to the population. So. Uh, we should recognize that uh, the, the impact of those cyclones and other uh, climate change uh, and other climate change situation have in really uh, uh, an impact on the on the life and also on the production for this population. So uh, the UN organization, so the UN, uh, have always been there to to in fact to help the population by providing solutions, also to improve their, their resilience capacities. So we have been implementing different residence programs to help this population. But we should recognize that uh, given the recurrent of these uh, cyclones, of, of this, it has always been difficult really to, uh, to have, it has always been difficult really to, to, to solve mm. these, these problems here. Dr. Takukam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Dr. Patrice Tala Takukam of the Food and Agriculture Organization. Our headlines up next with Onilin Tinsi. Islamic State militants accept a pledge of alliance by the Nigerian Boko Haram extremist group. A coalition of Zimbabwean civil society groups vows to disrupt the SADC's heads of state summit scheduled for end of April. And United Nations experts say government needs governments need to openly criticize the practice of child marriages. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. Organizations in the fight against HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria are meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The agencies are discussing ways of helping governments avail cheaper medication to the affected by these diseases. The forum has highlighted, among other issues, the lack of adolescence testing as a big gap in spreading the HIV infection. Koleta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa. HIV-AIDS continues to be a major global public health issue, having claimed more than 39 million lives so far. This is according to World Health Organization statistics, which also show that in 2013, 1.5 million people died from HIV-related causes globally. 
there were approximately 35 million people living with HIV at the end of the year 2013, with 2.1 million people being newly infected with HIV in 2013 globally. Sub-Saharan Africa is the most affected region, with 24.7 million people living with HIV as of 2013. Also, Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for almost 70% of the global total of new HIV infections. Stakeholders dealing in the fight against this HIV-AIDS, tuberculosis and malaria are meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, and the issue of the new HIV infections has been a point of discussion. Anupama Roa Singh is a representative of UNICEF Ethiopia. She says that many countries are ignoring the need to specifically pay attention to adolescent testing. She says statistics show that HIV testing is mainly done for children and adults, leaving out this vulnerable group of adolescents. Adolescent HIV care and treatment is an intolerably overlooked important piece of the assignment. In Ethiopia, only 20% and 21% of adolescent boys and girls respectively were tested for HIV in the last 12 months and received the results. Most adolescents living with HIV are unaware that they are even have infected with the virus. Unit Aid, an organization that deals in solutions to transform the pharmaceutical markets, says that the non-consideration of adolescents in testing is as bad as the adolescents not following their medication well. Gelise Makalo is the project manager of Unit Aid. She says in most cases when a HIV AIDS positive adolescent takes the liberty to take a medication holiday, the counter medication to restore his or her health is more costly and even more risky. So for us it's a big concern because a patient nowadays on first line treatment, it costs us about $100 and $120 per patient per year. If that treatment fails, we move to second line treatment. A second line treatment costs about 500. It used to cost 1,500, but we have brought second line treatment prices down to about 500. But it's still four to five times more than a first line. Not only that, if that second line treatment fails, what next? Unit Aid is selling innovative solutions to countries to enable them improve medicine accessibility at a lesser cost to patients of HIV, AIDS, TB and malaria. Gelise Makalo, the project manager of Unit Aid, says that for countries in Africa where most of the population lives in hard-to-reach areas, it is inevitable for the governments to equip the health workers available with kits that can test and give results in a few minutes and hence enabling medication to be prescribed in good time. Unit Aid calls this technology the point-of-care diagnostic technology. If a health worker, and not even a laboratory assistant, but a health worker, can perform a monitoring test for her patient in front of her and come out with a result in 20 minutes, she can then prescribe the right medicines at the right time. And that patient doesn't have to come back to get more medicines or their results later on. So we are constantly looking for, first of all, better diagnostics, but also better medicines. Another issue that has been raised in regard to HIV AIDS is the need for governments to close the wide gap between between the relative success obtained in adult HIV services and that of pediatrics. Early infant diagnosis remains low and statistics show that 20% of children are estimated to have access to HIV testing within the recommended two months of birth, while 60% of their mothers have already been tested. Kuala for Channel Africa Radio, in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
The World Linguistic Agency has rated Malawi as the sixth best English-speaking African country. This comes at a time when Lilongwe is battling against time to meet the Millennium Development Goals on universal access to education. The study names Uganda as the best with Malawi's neighbours Zambia second. George Mango reports from Blantyre. Such news has not come as a surprise in the ears and eyes of many language experts and scholars in Malawi. Important general education indicators for the country include the national adult literacy rate pegged at 67.3% for women and 76.5% for men. To bring this down in Nkatabe district alone, for example, adult literacy is slightly higher at 74.6% for women and 88.3% for men. This reflects that Malawi is committed to the education of its citizens. English and Chichewa are the country's two official languages, and most of these lessons are done in English. Renowned historian and social commentator Ephraim Nyondo said this signifies that Malawi has made strides in championing quality education by teaching in English. Malawi has always been uh, a British country since independence and uh, our curriculum has always been in English. Uh, everything is taught in English, all the subjects in, in primary school, secondary school up to college. So I think English is a, is a, is a major thing. Uh, in terms of literacy levels, I think literacy levels we're also not doing that bad. We are at, 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 at 76%. Uh, uh, I think literacy levels here in terms of how many people can read and write in English. So I think the report is only trying to vindicate how much the influence of English is uh, in the country. Yes. While the official primary school age group in Malawi is categorized as 6 to 13, it is also common for students of varying ages to attend primary school as many students have to repeat some primary years before they progress into the secondary or university level. In fact, there are three school terms as a year for primary schools in Malawi, running generally from September to December, January to April, and April to July. Primary school students in Malawi learn a variety, a variety of subjects and take examinations in English, except for Chichewa, the second national language. During visits to schools, leisure time, too is characterized by English debates among learners. For instance, central to this were pros and cons of learning in town and rural areas. These students were from Mulanje district, one of the schools outside Malawi's commercial capital, Blantyre. My name is Patience Hala from Jeza village in Mulanje district. Our patrons, the chief proposer, the chief opposer, proposers, opposers, and the audience. Welcome to our debate. The topic of our debate is it is better to live in town than in village. Then I encourage you all to take part in our discussions. Government also recognizes the importance of preschool education and encourages communities to set up their own but does not support preschools financially. In these schools, learners also learn in English. Basically, people would be able to read and write in English better than in their mother tongues. For Nyondo, again, there is need for investment in the education sector for Malawi to come out as one of the top three nations in Africa in the next few years. If we can have more investment in, in, in education, we are build more schools, uh, pay teachers well, recruit more more, more teaching and learning, learning materials in, uh, in primary schools, I think that would be very critical because, because as it stands now, we are still having a challenge of, on, on, 
how, on how much we, re we retain those who, uh, who begin school in Standard 1. For instance, uh, there was a report that showed that in Standard 1, we have 1 million people who enroll, but with the moment they get to Standard 8, we, we remain not, not more than, not, not, not less than 60,000 people, which is terrible. So a lot of people, uh, a lot of, uh, of these children, they end up some dropping out, some getting married. So I think we can, if, if we can have more interventions to make sure that the retention rate moves from 21% to at least a, a, a better percent, I think if the, the world border will come again with another report, Malawi will, will move uh, at, a, at a, quite a, an interesting an, an interesting line. English was introduced into Malawi towards the end of the 19th century due to the influence of British explorers, missionaries, the arrival of the African Lakes Corporation and colonial administrators present since the establishment in the 1890s of the British Central Africa Protectorate. Currently, every document in Malawi is recorded and written in English. Parliament too conducts deliberations in English. The laws are also written in English. Progression into secondary and higher education requires certification of competence in English. One major thing is that if you fail the English subject, you would not be awarded certificates, you would not be awarded primary school, junior secondary school, and secondary school certificates. George Muhango. Channel Africa Planter. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabi Suluhuku. Although African economies have performed better in the past 10 years, the continent is yet to achieve meaningful progress in critical areas such as health-related Millennium Development Goals. A report compiled by the African Development Bank says Africa still struggles with a high burden of disease in addition to rising income inequality and social exclusion. This means that economic growth has not always resulted in increased access to health care by poor and disadvantaged populations. African governments spend on average 40 to 60 percent of their public expenditure on social services, education, health, social protection as well. Rwanda's Minister for Natural Resources, Vincent Biruta, says that the East African community needs to formulate oil and gas sector policies which promote sustainable development of natural resources, environmental issues and ensure prudent oil cash management systems. Benjamin Mushatama has the details. Oil and gas industry activities should be carried out in a sustainable manner with clear mitigation measures in place to safeguard the environment and biodiversity. Biruta says this will also play a big role in combating climate change as impending oil production in the region will ease pressure on forests since most people rely on wood fuel. He was speaking at the just-concluded 7th Petroleum Sector East African Conference in Kigali. South Africa's Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown says she and ESCOM's board have long been frustrated about the inability of the power utilities executives to give proper information on operational issues. Four ESCOM top executives, including CEO Tsidiso Matuna, who has been with ESCOM for six months, were suspended yesterday. Board Chair Zola Tsuzi announced an inquiry into, to look into ESCOM's operations. Brown says that the instability at power plants, the unreliable supply of electricity, and its dire impact on the economy is concerning. 
Well, I actually went to the board and told the board that I've had great difficulty in understanding ESCOM's financial liquidity, for understanding the reasons for the huge cost overruns that cost the state billions and billions of rands in Medupi and Kusile, that I'm concerned about the credibility of the um, information, that maintenance within the South African state is not taking place adequately and at on time and within a program. Meanwhile, a fraction of South Africa's Public Enterprises Portfolio Committee says it has written to Public Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown asking her to brief the committee on the suspension of four ESCOM executives. Committee Chairperson Dipuole Tzatzi says that they've learned of the suspension through the media. She says it is crucial for the committee to be fully briefed on the latest developments at ESCOM. It's worrying, more so taking into consideration the problems which are there at ESCOM, and it's a worrying factor. So we need to have this meeting as soon as possible. But procedurally, you know, the board reports to the, the, the ministry, but ourselves as, as the oversight structure, we also have our role to, to oversee what's happening in this forestators. Brent crude is steady, above $57 a barrel on bargain hunting by investors, but gains were capped by a steady dollar after its fall from multi-year highs on weaker U.S. retail sales. Asian investors were also mulling the impact from a tentative deal that would end a strike by U.S. refinery workers. A strong greenback makes commodities denominated in the dollar more expensive for holders of other currencies. Investors are also eyeing developments in Libya and Iraq. Indicators at this hour, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, we come live to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. It's bright out there. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.24 South African Rand, 9.90 Botswana Pula, 7.23 in Zambia, 0.66 British Pound, 9.5 across the Euro, Gold, $1.159, Platinum, $1.119 an ounce. Brand crude oil, $57.25 a barrel. That's an economic update. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Ghana and Mali joined Nigeria into the last four and also qualified for the 2015 FIFA Underworld. 20 World Cup in New Zealand. After victories in the Group B matches last night at the Caroline Fire Stadium in Mbo. It was Ghana's 2-1 win over Zambia in the second match of the day that qualified them as well as the Malians who had earlier beaten the Amachita of South Africa by a similar scoreline. Both Ghana and Mali have six points after victories in two games making the meeting between the two sides on Sunday in Mbo serve academic purposes. The other World Cup slot will be decided in Group A with host Senegal, Ivory Coast and Congo in contention.
and the chances of Zimbabwe's soccer team of competing at the 2018 World Cup in Russia have ended without a ball being kicked. Zimbabwe has been expelled from qualification matches for the tournament after missing deadlines to pay former national team coach Jose Claudine Ijojini. The Zimbabwe Football Association hasn't appealed the decision. The likes of Cuthbert Malajila, Willard Katsande, Kama Billiard and Tendai Ndoro look set to miss out on the opportunity to play on the global stage. Katsande says the situation is frustrating. Yes, obviously it is not a good thing. It's a setback because obviously it was a platform for the youngsters to showcase their talent and show what they are capable of doing at the highest level. I just woke up and just saw the news on the internet that we have been banned. It's so disturbing because, as you can see, just check the age group and you understand this is an up-and-coming age group. That's what we are going to build our future national team around. For us to be banned, it's no good. Banyana Banyana will return home today, having achieved a 10th place finish at the Cyprus Women's Cup. The tournament is by invitation only and consists of 11 national teams from Europe, North America and Asia, with South Africa being the only African team as a 12th nation. Placed in the lower-ranked nations group, Group C, the Sassel-sponsored national team had to battle it out with Belgium, Czech Republic and Mexico. Banyana Banyana have been using the tournament as preparation for the All-Africa Games and Rio Olympic qualifiers, which are due to get underway soon. Banyana's midfielder, Amanda Lamini says they have learned a lot from the tournament and now the journey continues towards the qualifiers for the All-Africa Games and Olympics. In cricket news, England captain Ian Morgan won the toss and chose to bowl this morning in the Cricket World Cup Pool A match against Afghanistan at the Sydney Cricket Ground. The match is the first meeting between the two teams in an official international. England made two changes to the lineup, which slumped to a 15-run loss to Bangladesh on Monday, eliminating the two-time finalists from quarter-final contention. Ravi Bupara makes his first appearance of the tournament for Moon Ali, and James Treadwell comes in for Chris Wokes, while Afghanistan making its debut at the tournament named Shafulka Shafak and Nasir Jamal for Asgar Stanizai and Usman Ganifrom as the only changes from the team which lost to New Zealand by six wickets in Napier on Sunday. And finally, with rugby news, South African rugby science Thomas coach Alistair Kutse has made a handful of changes to his team to play against the Chiefs of New Zealand at Newlands in Cape Town on Saturday. Kutse says he has been impressed with Kutse, the progress he made this season, and that he was also giving Van Veek an opportunity to play before the Stormers embark on their overseas tour. Johnny Kotze has really started well in this campaign. He's, I always speak about building capacity in the squad. He's really done a good job. But Johnny Kotze has also got a bit of a shoulder injury. And uh, Kobus is 100% ready to play. He's been training with the squad for two weeks. So it's an ideal opportunity to give Kobus a start before we go on tour and also uh, simultaneously give Johnny as a young player, you don't want him to play with a niggle and it's, you know, the shoulder he was, give him time, two weeks time to, to get the damn thing ready to settle the AC joint and be ready for tour. That's your sport news this hour.
Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. AU faces criticism for deferring a report on human rights abuses in South Sudan. Zimbabwe civil society demand the release of kidnapped activists and experts gather in Japan for the UN conference on disaster risk reduction. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for this week. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzora Magaza and Elizabeth Ledicha, technical producer Dabucho Munamuholo and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with a track titled Loi. Alléluia. Tu es 